Hello, my name is Jonathan Getz, and this is Phonicle, a podcast devoted to sharing true life stories, both big and small, told by our elders. My hope is that this podcast encourages others to ask elders in their lives to tell more stories, revealing remarkable life experiences. To learn more about Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, P-H-O-N-I-C-L-E.com. For this episode, I spoke with Carol Hawk. But before I present Carol, I'd like to mention that she's a loyal Kansas City Royals fan and was preparing to watch that evening's game with her friend Lula Page, who listened as we talked that afternoon. After Carol finished sharing her stories, Lula volunteered to tell a few of her own. So stay tuned for her stories at the end of this special two-for-one episode. And now I present Carol Hawk, born 1939 in Brookville, Pennsylvania. Just a quick setup. Carol attended nursing school in Dallas in the late 1950s, and her son Trey can also be heard in the recording. Three of us got an apartment, and I went to work for the hospital for, you know, because I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. There were two cardiovascular and thoracic surgeons. None of the surgeons here, they all had their private scrub nurses. But at that time back then, Nobody hardly knew what a private scrub nurse was. I certainly wasn't aware of them. Dr. McSwain and Dr. Seibel came to me and they said, what would you say if you, we asked you to come to work with us and be our scrub nurse? And surgery was always my love when it, through school. Oh, I said, I would be so fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> Dr. McSwain says, well, I don't know. <laughs> she said, he said, you'll have to act very nice. I said, I can do that. So that was our conversation, <laughs> interviewing me to go to work for them. But they, they knew me because I had scrubbed so many times for them. So what does that mean to be scrubbing with them? That means going into the OR and knowing the instruments that they want to use and handing them to them as they ask for them. They were just beginning. They were wanting me to do the closure, but I wasn't real hip on that, doing the stitches that they needed to because they're cut from stem to stern. Then, about that time, DeBakey did his first open-heart surgery in Houston. McSwain wanted to do that also. So we went to Houston to... We scrubbed with DeBakey a few times. He knew what he was doing, and he did it his way, and his way only. When we did first started to do the hearts here, it was at a time when the... Internal medicine doctors were not sure that that was what should be done. And they would keep the patients medically so long that it was almost for certain that the patient was going to die. You know, there was no more that they could do for, for them. And then the patient was in such, medical, uh, such a medical condition, it would just be by miracle that we would get them and keep them alive. We lost our first few that we did. But it was at a point, medically, there wasn't anything more they could do for the patient, and they would have had to have just signed off. But after the first two, we started to do these patients, and like I said, miraculously, they got well physically so that they could take over for their hearts. I did fairly well with the, the adults, but we did a few children they were hard to take. Uh, and then we, then we did children after that that were, were wonderful. During this time that we were doing this, we were also working in what they called the dog lab, 
we would get the dogs from the pound that were going to go to sleep and make a defect in the heart and then repair it and see if, you know, it would work. And that was okay with me, but a couple of the dogs, we had, he had to sign that he would not wake them up because they were ready to go to the pound and be euthanized, and that just about killed me. I thought, I begged Dr. McSwain to, to wake him up because he was the cutest puppy. I mean, not puppy, a dog, a big dog. And Dr. McSwain said, Carol, I signed that paper, and I'm not going against it. <laughs> I said, well, let me go out of here before you do that. So I had to leave. I, it just tore me up. I wanted that puppy to come, on, come awake and come home with me. But then it got easier and easier. When we first started doing these, it would take almost 12 hours to do these surgeries. How do you pace yourself for something like that? I would stop drinking liquids at noon the day before. <laughs> so, because back then we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have anybody to relieve us, you know, come in and let us go. And there was no way we could go and the doctor be there by himself. So, so when you're in there, you're saying that you're holding instruments at all times? Oh, yeah. You have to scrub to get in there. And then they put the sterile gown on you. Then they hold the gloves and glove you. Then once you're gloved, and you can go to this back table and put the instruments up on your overbed. Then then it's just, you know, the doctor will say scalpel, uh, forceps. <laughs> try trying to ring. It's like we see it in the movies. Oh, it's like yes. a really common thing. Do they is. get it right in the movies when, uh, when well, they depict that scene? Yeah, pretty pretty much so. Unless they're doing a comic act and then you hand the the cutting side, you know, down or turn the sca the uh, forceps around. But God help me if I ever put the blade. <laughs> So it sounds like you were at the forefront of this heart procedure. Yes, we were. Development. Did you realize? Like, no. No? I, you know, it was like, I very seldom told anybody, you know, what I was doing, because I thought everybody was doing it, and it was nothing. You may have caught Carol's reference to a Dr. DeBakey. It turns out Dr. Michael E. DeBakey was a world-renowned cardiac surgeon and medical pioneer who, while just a 23-year-old medical student at Tulane, developed a roller pump that helped make open-heart surgery possible 20 years later. DeBakey also helped postulate a link between smoking and lung carcinoma, was one of the first to perform coronary artery bypass surgery, and performed the first successful patch graft angioplasty. DeBakey's insistence on the use of animals for medical research was a controversial stance he defended by claiming his respect for the dignity of life and compassion for the sick and disabled was what motivated him and other medical professionals to search for ways of relieving the pain and suffering caused by diseases. And then I, I went to work in the emergency room, and that gets chaotic, <laughs> you know, if a wreck comes in. And then one night, the operating room nurse came down and she says, this patient with, the, with a certain blood type, had been shot at a service station, and we had no blood. There was, they were, were calling all over the city of Dallas. I said, well, I'm O. She says, do you mind giving blood? And I said, well, how much are we giving? And she <laughs> says, let it to be a pint, just like we always do. And I said, well, of course. So I went up to the OR with her, had the set suit out, 
lay, lay down on this gurney or the stretcher. The guy they were going to operate was on the operating room table, and she stuck me with what she needed to do, and of course she checked to make sure that I was O positive. And I said, well, how, how are you going to know when I have given a pint to him? Because <laughs> you know, we it was in a direct blood transfusion. And she said, we time it, Carol. <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't know. I said, I wouldn't know how much I'd given to him. <laughs> but uh, it must have worked. He came out of it. That's remarkable. Does that I, happen often? No, it doesn't. I mean, it, it happens, you know, probably more often than what we know. Because I would have never guessed that. They didn't teach that in nursing school. (laughs) Realizing Carol's time in Dallas-Fort Worth placed her in the city during President Kennedy's fateful visit in 1963, I asked her what she remembers about that day. So I had gotten off work. I passed over the viaduct. I was listening to the radio, and they were saying that he he was in downtown Dallas, and the motorcade was coming towards this viaduct. I, I knew they were going to be coming right there, and I thought, I could just go down this exit and go, be down there at the end of that exit whenever he comes and goes. And then I thought, oh, Lord, I, I was just ready to get home. So I thought, if I, get, if I go fast enough and if I get home quick enough, I'll be able to see it on TV. Well, that's where they were headed when he got shot. So I thought... But grace of God, you know, I could have been right down there in the middle of it. And then they did come up and they went, took him to Parkland Hospital, which is like our Truman here. My friends, I had a couple of friends that worked emergency at Parkland. And she said, I thought for sure all the security guys were going to pick each one of us up and place us somewhere and tell us not to move. You know, and they and they finally had to say to them, these People are trying to help. But she said it was total chaos there in the emergency room. So Leonard talked to several of his cohorts that were delivering babies and stuff and and asked them if they had any giveaways. And this one said he had a patient that was not going to keep the baby. And so being that we were not actual residents of Missouri, we had to go do it through the courts of Oklahoma. But you did it through Oklahoma because a cross-state adoption was more legally binding. I think one of the funniest things with Trey was I was going to the hospital to pick pick Megan up, and uh, they said the doctor would be sitting out in his Cadillac. with her because it was cold. It was the end of January. The whole way there, I thought, someone's following me. I know they are. <laughs> and, but anyway, pulled into the to where they were, and they brought her over, and she was all bundled up. We, she wasn't making a sound. So I, they put her, put her in Trey's lap and then seat-belted her and Trey together. So and Trey, Three car seats. <laughs> And so, anyway, and I took off, you know, with with him, and I thought, oh, dear God, police are going to come get me. I just know they are. I've stolen a baby from Lakeside Hospital. (laughs) So, but anyway, 
after we got to, out of the hospital uh, parking lot, trailer looked at me and he said, Mom, is she in here? <laughs> and I said, yes. But I said, we're going to have to wait till we get, a, get to the stop sign, our stoplight up here, and hopefully it'll turn red and we can undo the blankets. Well, it did turn red. And we started, and there was, I can't tell you, at least five or six blankets we were unfolding. And there she was. She was sound asleep. And that was Carol Hawk, whose team loyalty was rewarded later that fall as she watched her beloved Kansas City Royals win their first World Series championship in 30 years. As I mentioned earlier, after Carol finished, her friend Lula Page volunteered to tell a few stories of her own. She casually revealed, much to my surprise, that she's the daughter of Negro League's Hall of Fame pitcher Satchel Page. And now I present Lula Page, born 1958 in Kansas City, Missouri. My parents were lovely to me, I would say that. And they would take us to certain places, you know. Like my father, he loved to go fishing. Yes, we go fishing. Yeah. And just watch our father. He would like ties to a tree, you know, because he'd always be like kind of scared that we might fall in the water and stuff like that, you know. He learned us how to scale and how to clean mouse. How do you do it? Uh, we, I don't know how to do it. You don't? No. We took a knife and we scaled them and. Uh, then he teaches how to cut them open. Then we clean the insides out. And, of course, cut off the head. And then when it's clean, then we season them, and, you know, put them in flour, whatever. And then after a while, we put them in hot grease and cook them. Because <laughs> he loved to catch catfish. Yes, I have grandma seizures, so I've never been able to work. When was your first seizure? Uh, when I was 12, when I was 12 years old. It's some things that I wanted to do, you know, so bad, but I couldn't do them for the reason that I did have seizures. And certain things, you know, you know, like would bring on seizures like if somebody... You know, scary too bad, and, and I've always had to have someone to watch over me. When my sister or brother see me kind of trembling, I, then I couldn't go. I'd have to I'd sit down and look at television, you know, and eventually um, I'll go to sleep. What would you? What would calm you down on the TV? What would you uh, like to watch? Uh, movies, yeah. uh, westerns, stuff like that. That would that would put my mind at ease, you know. And I would get me uh, maybe a glass of juice or something, you know. And I calm myself down. You've gotten pretty good at, at mm -hmm. it over the years. Are you able to help other people, maybe who don't necessarily have seizures, but on how to? Calm yeah, themselves yeah, down. Yeah, how to control them. Yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. have. So you do have a job. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do have my own job, but I don't get paid for it. 
But it's 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 good to help people because some people uh, don't really understand how to do it, and the first thing they do is run to the doctor, you know. But eventually, when if long as I've had them, you know, eventually you'll learn how to calm yourself down because you find out you can't always run to everybody. Like I used to tell them, you have some, there are times you have to talk to yourself to calm down. You can't always run to people. You can't always run to medicine because those things you feel are going to work all the time, they don't. You still end up having seizures. To prevent all those emotions, you have to help yourself. My mother was a lovely woman. She was very generous and understanding. Boy, as punishing the kids, she she'd rather talk. You tell her, you know what's wrong. I mean, how do you feel about certain things? You know, she all taught us to be to be parents and to be good people. Yes, being the mother was tough at times, but you know, you think about the things you went through and the experiences also. You know your mother would talk to us and see what 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 is the problem? What's 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 going on? Before I think anything goes wrong, she would ask you, Why are you doing this? You know? Sounds similar to Right, and the, also the way I control my seizures. Yeah. Which I can like my daughter makes me real mad. I cannot get upset, you know, I fear. So, I, like I said, I sit down. And sometimes when I sit down, I just put my elbow like you got so and just think. And it does. It calms. It calms you down. It, it actually calms you down. Thank you for listening to this episode of Phonical. If you have an elder in your life that would like to share their stories for potential use in a future episode, please email me at listen at phonical.com. For more episodes of Phonical, visit phonical.com, where you can also sign up for new episode email alerts. Thanks. Thanks.